Welcome to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Swigger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at SerengetiSec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical applications that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. The most searched for links on URL scan are all for the domain OnlyFans. I've never heard of this. That's weird. Yeah, what the heck is OnlyFans? Bizarre. Bizarre. All right. The first article is Mysterious Company with Government Ties Plays Key Internet Role. Dun, dun, dun. And believe it or not, this is a conspiracy article. Yay! A fan favorite of mine. Anyway, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. We'll turn this into a conspiracy podcast. Don't you worry. But this is actually from the Washington Post, big conspiratorial rag that it is. So Google, Chrome, Safari, and Firefox allow the company True Store Systems to act as what's known as a root certificate authority. And what's unusual about this, because if you look in your browser store, there are a ton of root certs in there. But this company in particular is a bit odd, and we'll get into some of the reasons why it's odd. The first one, or the one noted in the subtitle for the article, is that their physical address is a UPS store in Toronto. It's a little bit weird. What is also unusual about the company is that it, besides having a uh, its physical address being in Toronto, it's registered in Panama. And this company has a whole bunch of its officers which share, which are also officers for other, with, a, with another company and actually a couple other companies that are associated with spyware in the U.S. government. Primarily packet forensics and measurement systems, as well as a holding company called Frigate Bay Holdings. I mean, these all seem totally fine. They have such innocuous, empty names. Yeah, which accurately reflect exactly what they do. Because uh, Packet Forensics is basically a spyware maker. So they've sold communication intercepts to the U.S. government for more than a decade. And they currently have a multi-million dollar contract with the government. And they sell interception devices and tracking services to authorities. And they have identical officers, agents, and partners as TrueScore, TrustCore, excuse me. And one fellow in particular that keeps popping up is Raymond Salino, who has been identified in Wired Magazine as a, pack, as a spokesman for packet forensics. You can say, like, this is the E. Howard Hunt of this whole scenario. If you don't recognize that name, look it up. I don't. But the other company, Measurement Systems. So this company paid developers to create some spyware for mobile apps that would tr transmit phone numbers, emails, exact locations, and transmit it back to whoever the owned the app. And they did that those apps have been downloaded more than 60 times. A million times. 60 would be a lot less. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> pull, pull to Joe Biden there. If I remember <laughs> right, one of those apps was specifically a Muslim prayer app, right? That was downloaded 10 million times? Yes. Correct. <laughs> so I wonder who they're targeting with that one. I, it's weird. I don't know. I don't know. Measurement Systems website is registered by Volstrom Holdings. And Volstrom fired papers in 2007 to do business as packet forensics. So all three of these are tied closely together. And surprise, surprise, measurement systems was registered in Vienna by Raymond Salino. 
And he is the, the spokesman for Packet Forensics, right? Right. Mm. And who is also an officer in Trust Corps. What? 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 Yeah, exactly. And in addition to that, this Volstrom was registered to the domain trustcore.co, which redirects to the Trustcore site. So it seems based on the business activity alone, there seems to be little doubt that Trustcore, which has the root CA in all these browsers, has ties to Packet Forensics, which has direct ties to the U.S. government. And for, and that not only that, but Packet Forensics has sold uh, basically spy and related software to the government as well. No one would do that. That seems immoral. Well, I, unethical, at least. Morality <laughs> right. is purely That's subjective. Fair. But some of the other things that, that make trust core unusual is they, well, maybe not unusual per se, but that make it seem like this, may, this organization may not be above board is they had a product called MessageSafe, which purported to be end-to-end -end email encryption, which is basically used to intercept communications for the U.S. government. And that was quoted from a anonymous source that used to work for Packet Forensics. But even though this is one of the things that actually you'll probably find with, multi, with more than one end-to-end -end encryption services, is that they manage the keys. Now, while technically you can still have end-to-end -end encryption with someone else managing your keys, but that also means that at any point, they could decide to use those keys in order to read that data, which is supposedly end-to-end -end encrypted. So it sounds an awful lot like crypto. Yeah, and the EFF tested this, and they found that, you know, this is not what they claim it to be. And test versions of that email software did include spyware, which Google <laughs> later banned any code or any applications which contain that code from its app stores. Well, hold on. So it's not just any spyware, though. It is specifically the spyware that Packet Forensics developed. Correct. Yeah. So this is a web. This whole thing is a web. Right. And the Frigate Bay, holding, Frigate Bay Holdings, which we mentioned earlier, they filed papers to dissolve the organization in Wyoming. And guess who signed those papers? I Somebody we've never heard of, I'm sure, right? These are big companies. They've got lots of people that work for them. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it's another... Ray Celine. Oh, they're so big. They have multiple people with the same name. Oh, boy. Yeah, again, if you look at their email address, it's Celino123 and 4 at trustcore.co. <laughs> All right. And one of the other weird things about it, and this is in light of the fact that they actually got uh, authorized by these browsers to be put in there, is that Trustcore's auditing company is a Princeton audit firm, is the Princeton Audit Group. And their address is a townhouse in Princeton, New Jersey. So a well-vetted auditor. So what's interesting, how familiar are you with the things like S-Corps and the offshore corp developments, you know, in the Cayman Islands and Delaware and stuff like that? Not very. All right. I'm not either, but I recently finished reading a book talking about it, how rich people use these offshore corporations to hide their money to prevent taxing. And I'm not going to comment on the morality or ethics of that, but like that they just do it. And they found, for example, that, you know, there was a, there was an office building in the Cayman Islands that had like 10,000 companies registered to it. And that's what this makes me think of. This makes me think that there's one guy or a small group behind all these places 
They've registered a bunch of different companies, so they all look like different businesses. And I'm not suggesting they're hiding money. I'm just suggesting that they're using similar mechanisms to then go and get government contracts and get other contracts to maintain stuff that they're probably outsourcing. I doubt that they have any you know, coders themselves are probably using outseased or contracted coders to do their work. So you think this is less nefarious and more uh, contractors trying to game the federal government contract system? To make it look right. like the same people, less than well, different you know, people, different, yeah, different people yeah. are getting different contracts when it's actually the same people. Yeah. I mean, we see some fraud like this with the government too, where you hire somebody that's a veteran or a woman or a minority, or hopefully all three of those to run your company to get the bonuses from the contracting process. And then like right, they don't definitely. do the work, they outsource it. I remember Accenture was involved in one of these where they the contract was won by this company that ticked all the boxes and then Accenture was doing the actual work subcontracted under them. Right. Yeah. If you look at DHS contracts, you find a huge number of Native American companies that have won major contracts with DHS and they sub out all the work to Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, et cetera. Yeah. So that's what this seems like to me. This seems like... I don't know. Maybe it is a maybe it is more conspiracy theory, but I think this is just some dude that was like, "Huh, I can get a bunch of lucrative government contracts if I do this." Could be. Could also be really shitty tradecraft, which would not surprise me. I mean, it's you so may far. not remember what's that? It's worked so far. They were able to get into the trust store on all these browsers with this ham-fisted organization. So I suppose it's a matter of least effort. It's like not having to use a zero day when you can just you know uh, sleepwalk your way through this. But yeah, I don't think tradecraft is what it used to be. A number of years ago, maybe it's going on 10 now. The CIA's tradecraft was so bad that they've lost virtually all their assets in Iran because of their poor tradecraft, going back to the same site multiple times for multiple meetings and things like that, and mm -hmm. basically had their entire intelligence network rolled up in, in a, Iran over a weekend. Oh boy. But anyway, this whole matters focuses around root certificates. So there have been instances in the past where organizations failing to properly manage the responsibility of having a root CA, a company called Dark Matter that was known for hacking distance and even some Americans was denied by Mozilla to have root certificate authorized. Google withdrew the root authority of the China Internet Network Information Center after there was there were some mishandlings and even Symantec about seven years ago or so was threatened with having their certificate authority removed or the browser the basically because the browser companies really hold all the power here if you will because if they fail to allow a root ca within their browser that could be a real problem for co companies that mint mint certificates and Symantec was failing to properly manage their certificate business and they were threatened to be yanked out, all the, out of all the browsers and they ended up selling to Digicert in order to prevent losing all that business and for all those companies to run into, who already had those semantic certificates from running into trouble. Don't threaten me with a good time. And each browser, they don't have a uniform requirements for allowing a certificate to be added to the root store. Each one is different. In Firefox case, it takes two years and includes crowdsourced and direct vetting as well as an audit. Uh, and this is typically fake, focuses on formal statements and technological steps rather than actual ownership and intent. So when they're doing this vetting, you know, we went through a whole bunch of odd things for TrustCore. 
Those things were not even considered by Mozilla when considering whether they were going to add them as a root store or as a root certificate to the root store or not. And Mozilla currently has 169 root certificates, including three from TrustCore, but not in my root store because I deleted them. <laughs> it's a way to take action. But since this came out from the Washington Post, Mozilla has given TrustCore two weeks to respond to a whole bunch of questions about their relationship between measured measurement systems and packet forensics. And the reason that we're even talking about this outside of its fun conspiracy theory stuff is that, you know, if you have the control over a root CA, you can create the certificates for any site on the internet, and then you can man in the middle of folk and they won't even realize it unless they dig into the certificate to see that it wasn't issued by the proper cert for the proper domain. And Google has caught organizations doing this before with Chrome because Google Chrome knows all the details about Google certificates. So when someone uses Google Chrome and tries to go to a Google property, if they're being manned in the middle by an organization that has taken the, the root certificate and created a Google property, a Google certificate for that, they would get caught. That's how they've caught misuse of root CAs in the past. So there was... I mentioned before that they, the paid tracking code in the apps, including a Muslim prayer app, there's actually been quite a lot in the news lately about location tracking people and then selling that information. Did we talk about this or is this, have I just been seeing it in the news everywhere? No, you and I have gone back and forth offline about it, but uh, we have not talked about it on gotcha. podcast. Yeah, it's been in the news a lot lately. They There was a big expose about companies that collect information from dozens of applications who collect location data, and then they correlate it all together using cell phone numbers and cell phone identifiers and other information. And they package it up and sell it to the police or to anybody who wants it. Some of them are more ethical than others. Some of them only several to the government, which I think you probably would say is less ethical, David. I say that. But uh, some do it semi-anonymously where you can purchase, you know, all cell phones that were in an area where, you know, you're not necessarily looking for a specific person. You're just looking for everyone in an area. And I can see where, you know, maybe the police would want that if there's a crime that was occurring or a governments would want that if there was a protest in the area. Some do it very specifically where you can give them a phone number or a cell phone identifier and get all locations visited by that cell phone over a period of time. And I was actually... I'm going to do a little research. What was it B-Sides Dallas? One of my coworkers was telling me about a B-Sides Dallas presentation where they were trying to tackle human trafficking. Here we go. Track number two. So a lot of folks, here's the summary. A lot of focus has been placed on leveraging data purchased from data brokers for nefarious intents. This talk aims to inform the attendee on what data is actually collected, as well, as well as how that data can be leveraged for good and not just evil. This talk explores a real-world case study that used data purchased from several data brokers and how that data was used to target and impact human trafficking operations. So that sounded like a very interesting talk, and they don't have them posted yet, but I definitely am going to follow up on that one when it's released because that could, I, I bet that would be very interesting regardless of whether I agree with this talk or not. You know what's ironic about the talk is that whenever the government rolls out any of this kind of tracking of citizens and, and intercept, communication interception or anything, they always say that is for these grandiose great things, the reason that they're doing it. 
Mm -hmm. And that these guys put forth the paper saying, oh, no, it's not the bad things, it's the good things. So in this instance, it's one where the actual tracking was actually utilized in the way that they purported to be utilized instead of for nefarious means. Yeah, well, I mean, my, my biggest issue with that is the human trafficking. How do you tell which parts are, which people are actually being trafficked and which ones are not? Because there's a huge debate now where there's groups of people saying that everybody that has ever been involved, you know, I'm not going to, this is not the place to dive into it, but I'm going to cut that out. But like, they're big on saying like all sex workers are trafficked. And so this seems like this would be a great way to track sex workers, which cops would be like, yeah, let's go arrest them. No, I think they're just trying to keep people out of Martha's Vineyard. Anyways, I'm unsure of how to actually stop this. I'm actually curious because normally in your phone, it pops up and tells you, you know, do you wish this app to, do you want this app to track your location? But some of these stories are talking about where it's not the app itself. It's a library in the app. I'm unsure if the phone can actually detect it. Like it doesn't have to actually be in, is it a setting to say, you know, ask for permission for location? And I, don't well, know I think the they answer. have to add, I think the way that the, they get the location data and in the Apple products anyway, is via an API. So to connect well, to so the you API, have to, you have to follow the framework. Yeah. Hopefully. Cause that means that even if it's in there where the owner or developer of the app doesn't realize that you can still disable it. But I actually went in after this and I was looking through my phone at what use location apps and I disabled stuff that I was like, ah, oh, this doesn't need location. This doesn't need location. But sometimes stuff stops working. For example, my Beats by Dre headphones. When I disabled location tracking in the app on my phone, the headphones stopped connecting to the phone. Are you serious? I am. That is ridiculous. Yeah, it was. What does Dre have to say about it? You'd think Dre would be all up in arms (laughs) about this. Yeah, I don't know. But I definitely was like, are you kidding me? I'm telling you, send Dr. Dre an email. But one thing you can do about the certificate stuff is clean up your cert store. You know, there are 169 certs in there. Probably don't need all of them. At least go in and delete the the trust core out of there. When we get rid of all the untrustworthy ones, there's going to be like six. Although, actually, that sounds like about the right number. more like one or... Do we really need 169 root certificate authorities? That is, there's a, I don't know. Yeah. Mm. No, I, I wish there was a, I wish there were some kind of metrics within the browser though, to indicate how many times those certs have been leveraged. So if you opened up your trust store, you can get some measurement of how frequently any one of those roots certificates or, or uh, a certificate issued by those root certs has been seen by your browser to maybe gauge which cert is more important than other certs. That makes sense. All right. Let's talk about our next article. Zero days are exploited on a massive scale and increasingly shorter timeframes from security affairs. And this one's not really a surprise. I think we've all been aware that this is occurring, but it is nice that it gives us a little data, a little more data. Microsoft warned in their latest digital defense report, it is 114 pages. I think we've had our fill of most reports. We decided not to tackle 114 pages of report. And but that 114 pages is dense. There are not a lot of huge images that take up, you know, the entire page. They're like a quarter of the page might be images. The rest is actually text. So it's pretty involved if you're going to go and read through that. But the link will be in the show notes if you do want to dive into it. <laughs> yeah, if you're like, eh, I got nothing to do this weekend. Uh, so anyways, they're warning specifically of an uptick among threat actors increasingly using publicly disclosed zero-day exploits in their attacks. And typically in the past, we used to have a lot of time between the announcement of a vulnerability and when the attackers started hitting them. This is why there would be like 30 or 60 day patch windows. You typically had a bit of time. But right now, it 
takes a lot less than that. Now, the current average right now is it takes 14 days for attackers to begin exploitation of a disclosed vulnerability. And that's done by the serious guys that really know what they're doing. You know, your nation state guys and your serious cyber criminals are being able to leverage that within the first 14 days. Yeah. Because if they're just talking about this, assuming, I guess there's two things you have to uh, assume here, that the disclosure includes the patch release so that they can reverse engineer the patch. I'm not sure. That's my assumption because they didn't really specify in the paper. Because if they simply identify that a vulnerability exists, it might take them a little bit longer to figure out exactly how the vulnerability works if they don't have a patch to reverse engineer. Yeah. Yep. Definitely loans with the in-house talent. On average, it takes 60 days for the exploit code to be released on GitHub. So this is where the malware is probably being rolled into existing malware kits. You yep. know, basically and, uh, like the, the plug and play modules where they just add additional features to their malware. Yeah. And this is probably those less advanced attackers. Maybe they've already heard of the specific method through the grapevine or, you know, on one of their internal chat servers. Or maybe they're just the less talented exploit devs that take a little bit longer to figure it out. And then finally, it takes about 120 days to get the module into Metal. Which means everybody can use it. Yeah. So why does this matter? Well, basically, if your patch program takes more than 60 days, you are definitely in trouble. If it takes more than 120 days, you are now past H.D. Moore's law and you are not tall enough to ride the internet. For those of you who are unaware, I'll include a link to H.D. Moore's law. That was coined by Josh Corman back in 2011. H.D. Moore created Metasploit. And the idea is that if an exploit is in Metasploit uh, and you cannot patch and keep yourself protected against what's in Metasploit, then you do not need to be on the internet. Well, I wouldn't say that, but you certainly accept a high level of risk. If you they are. will eventually find you and yep. they will eventually get you. Yeah. Uh, so what should you do about it? Um, you should ensure externally facing servers and your workstations are prioritized. So zero day for them comes out and you've got about 14 days before the advanced attackers start hitting you and you've got 60 days before everybody else does. Yeah. So you better hope that you're not as important. You're not important enough for those guys that can get that thing out in 14 days. I have yet to see uh, an organization that can patch in that fast. I'm sure there are some out there yeah. that do, though. You got to get into DevOps. You got to get your spinning down, spinning up systems and the cloud. Well, I don't disagree, <laughs> but that's not easy to be. That's not easy to do. All right, and finally, we come to our last article, which is SolarWinds faces potential SEC enforcement act over Orion breach, and this comes to us from Dark Reading. So the SEC is appears to be prepared to take an enforcement action against SolarWinds based on a filing from a SolarWinds of a Wells notice. And this is all around the 2019 breach, which everyone's pretty familiar with. And at that time, 18,000 customers received malicious, a malicious software update from SolarWinds, but less than 100 actually were targeted, were subsequently targeted based on that malicious software update. Like they, they infected so few people. It was obviously a failure. Yeah, it wasn't actually targeted. No, <laughs> it was just a, a massive failure. You're absolutely right. right. Less yeah. than 1%. So they're terrible. Nothing this. to worry about. Nothing to see here. Move on. But SolarWinds had to file a Form 8K, which disclosed the, this potential enforcement action from the SEC. And a Wells notice is simply a notification from the SEC says, we're coming for you, get ready. 
gird your loins, we're coming. Basically. <laughs> I am girded. <laughs> but of course, in that same statement, Sutherland maintains that its disclosure, public statements, controls, and procedures were all appropriate at the time of the breach. And in the same filing, <laughs> what, you doubt that, Matt? <laughs> Judging by what they say later, yes, I doubt that. I highly doubt that. Later in the same statement, they also indicate that they will pay $26 million in the class action lawsuit. And the expectation is that $26 million is going to be paid by their insurance company. And then I have to wonder, are they going to be immediately dropped by the insurance company or probably already been dropped by the insurance company? Or is their rate going to like quintuple? Yes. But the lawsuit claims that SolarWinds mis misled investors in its public statements regarding its cybersecurity practices. So in February of 2020, before the breach was disclosed or even identified, SolarWind filed a Form 10-K for 2019. And I'm, there are several paragraphs in here. Um, I, the whole thing is interesting to read, but I'm going to read uh, a couple of paragraphs from it to give you an idea about what was in there. First paragraph, because the techniques used to obtain unauthorized access or sabotage Systems change frequently and generally are not identified until they are launched against a target. We may be unable to anticipate these techniques or implement adequate preventative measures. New stuff comes out like once a year. And when it does come out, it's usually it's usually not even that different. It's like, like we talked the other day about the C2 via IIS. Like that was a cool new C2 mechanism, but the attacker still had to compromise the IIS server. They still had to deliver malware. There were multiple chances to detect it. And frankly, we talked before about how the government agencies aren't even using zero days because it's so easy to break into everything. This is nonsense. Well, this is, they're taking, they're taking a corner case and they're generalizing it to everything. Well, you did not read this as if you were a lawyer though. Because it said, <laughs> no, I saw that. That's their weasel May. word. That's their BS weasel word. <laughs> They're doing this to try and justify why they don't have appropriate corrective uh, or preventative controls technologies. In place. Yeah. All right. Next paragraph. We may also experience security breach that may remain undetected for an extended period of time and therefore have a greater impact on the products we offer, the proprietary data contained herein, and ultimately on our business. Again, they're stating nonsense. This is the, uh, yeah, it takes, what, 275 days to detect a breach. This is well known. Everybody knows this, but it's also an excuse. I don't know. I think because of the average identification time, I think it was stating a current reality. Well, I'm sorry. That's what I meant. They're stating the obvious on this one. Okay. All right. And the last paragraph here, despite our security measures, unauthorized access or security breaches of our software systems could result in the loss, compromise, or corruption of data, loss of business, severe reputational damage, adversity. <laughs> called it. They were very pressing with the statement. Compromise, corrupt, compromise or corruption of data, loss of business, severe reputational damage, adversely affecting customer or investor confidence, regulatory investigations and orders, litigation, indemnity obligations, damage for contract, breach, Penalties for violation of applicable laws or regulations. <laughs> Significant costs for remediation and other liabilities. Again, like the last one, they're stating the reality. This is every company. But when you say something like this, all you're doing is justifying it later so that when, oh, we were hacked, well, we couldn't stop it. It was a totally new thing and there was no place to detect it. 
Well, that may be true of the first paragraph. I will, I'll give you that one. Well, but that's the thing is they're stating in the first paragraph that they can't stop everything, which I, again, I get it as kind of true. And then the next two paragraphs, they're stating just the reality that everybody gets bre- assumed breach. There's going to be a breach. We're not going to be able to detect it in time. Right. I think all three of these things are basic realities, although the first one can be, well, the first one is acknowledging what you just said is that perfect security is not possible, really. You don't have to get to perfect security most of the time. I don't don't disagree with that statement. But all three of these are alleged by the lawsuit to say that these statements are factually inaccurate or misleading. And I'm not sure I'm fully on board with that. I think these are basic. Seeing basic realities of the security world in which we live. Yeah, I'm there with you. I do think that first one's deceptive, though, because the first one seems like it's deliberately intended to put doubt in the investor's mind on their ability to stop attacks. Well, here's the thing, is that they made these statements in their 10K filing, and while they may be grandiose or saying, hey, we're not going to be able to detect this, if you're an investor and you're reading this and you say, hey, this company says it can't protect itself from security breaches, then I am, I'm basically have been informed of this imperfection in their security. That's kind of the point that I'm getting to here is that these, I think, actually reinforce SolarWinds case from my perspective rather than are detrimental to the case because I don't think any of these statements are actually false or misleading to investors. I think they're stating basic realities that people have to come to terms with and either they accept these risks or they don't and they move their investment money around or they keep it. I would say if you had a company that instead of in paragraph one said, we have a high degree of confidence that we will be able to detect any possible breaches regardless of their sophistication against our organization, that would be a highly misleading statement. That's fair. Yeah, that would be highly misleading. I just, again, I'm reading this like it sounds like they're giving up responsibility because they're saying we can't do it. So, nothing. and that may be so, in which case investors could look at that and say, oh, oh well, you, oh, shit. I'm getting out of here. I'm getting, exactly. Although honestly, uh, like this is the first company, right? That has suffered severely. Yeah, they are still being punished. Although their stock was up a little bit the other day when I looked at it, up from mm-hmm. seven to 10. But going back to the document. So this was published, this 10K filing from which these supposedly misleading statements were published was published in February of 2020. Now in the complaint, and just to reiterate, SolarWinds was the, the compromise of SolarWinds discovered, was discovered in December of 2020. So almost the mm. entire year later. Now the complaint, it says the above statements were materially false or, and or misleading because they misrepresented and failed to disclose the following adverse facts pertaining to the company's business and business operations and prospects which were known to the defense or recklessly disregarded by them. Now, the first statement, and they have a list of five adverse facts, as they call them, in the complaint. The first one being, since mid tw- since mid 2020, SolarWinds Orion monitoring products had a vulnerability that allowed hackers to compromise the server upon which the products ran. Okay, so the, they're saying these statements which they made in February were misleading about a vulnerability which occurred after the statement was made. That seems ipso facto to me and should not be relevant. I mean, yeah, everybody who has products has vulnerabilities. I don't know. That's especially, I don't know. 
Well, the next also one, they, though. Well, they're saying that the vulnerability was discovered in, in mid-2020, but the statements they made were from February. You know, if they had discovered uh, the vulnerability in February and then made the statements in June. Yeah, you're talking about then the that relationship. Would be a, yep. All right. right. That would be a factual misrepresentation. Next point. Solar, SolarWinds update server had an easily accessible password of SolarWinds123. Now, admittedly, this is terrible. Yeah, no, this, no, this no is what kind of gives special characters even. This is what gives lie to their first paragraph back there in the 10K where they're like talking about it's used again or not identified and we can't anticipate these techniques. What, you couldn't anticipate that they would guess an easily guessable password? Shocking. Right. Well, how many, or, how many organizations right now do you think in the government themselves all of them have I don't even, I don't even have to wait passwords. all of them i knew where you're going they okay. all have it yep. so if you think the ceo has an understanding that you know this is out there you're mistaken but one thing i would say in support of the complaint is their password complexity was pretty bad considering no application no special characters even were required which would have invalidated that password but i can i I can't, I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen a password complexity of the standard eight uppercase, lowercase number of special characters be brute forced through, you know, what they used to call rainbow tables. I'm not sure they call them anymore, which is yeah, they do. You know, known, pa known passwords of similar types. For instance, many help desks, God only knows why, they will set a default password of the season and the year. Yes as the password with an explanation point at the end, first letter capitalized. You know, that's kind of standard in multiple, I've seen in multiple places. So that's e easily guessed and something like that, virtually every organization is gonna run into this simple password problem. So there's pluses and minuses, or you could weigh in on either side of the argument for this one. Uh, the next one is when customers vulnerable to hacks, they actually stated in there that, you know, this could lead to problems with their customer base. So I don't think that is, I don't think there was any misrepresentation in the statements about that. Specifically, have a greater impact on the products we offer and proprietary data contained therein and ultimately on the business. But if you read the other, the full statement, the full paragraphs in the complaint, there's even more evidence, I think, to support that that's not exactly an accurate thing that they misrepresented. Point four, company would suffer a significant reputational harm. I'm pretty sure that was almost said outright in this paragraph. Damage adversely affecting customer or investor's confidence, regulatory investigations, orders, litigations. So again, does not hold up. And finally, the defendant's statement about SolarWinds business operations and prospects were materially false and misleading and or lacked a reasonable basis at all relevant times. Again, it makes no sense to me. Yeah. And we talked about the second of the two. Like the first one is true. That first statement is true, but I feel like it's misleading. And the second and third ones are obviously true, at least of those. I mean, is there other statements they're talking about in that 10K? I don't know, but there's there were like five or six paragraphs which were called out in the complaint. I would have liked to have read the whole thing, but it, it was, I think it was too much. But I would recommend you go and take a look at the complaint, which will be linked in the show notes. Now, Vinath Kumar had sent an email about that password on the 19th of November, 2019. And SolarWinds replied that they had fixed it on the 22nd of November, 2019. Now, I was unable to find an accurate pre-discovery timeline for the events that led up to the SolarWinds compromise. So I don't know 
if the fact that he disclosed his password on the 19th, they said that they fixed it on the 22nd, if that was soon enough to prevent an actual compromise or not. According to the CEO in testimony before Congress, he said that the attackers were at least performing reconnaissance in 2019. So this may be a case of, hey, this uh, security researcher let you know that you had a problem and you failed to fix it, is what they're trying to say. But I think this may have been a case of he identified it, they fixed it, because why wouldn't you? Because they sent him an acknowledgement that they did fix it. But this, it simply may have been too late. But like I said, unfortunately, I was not able to get a good pre-discovery timeline to figure out the accuracy of that, of that or not. Now, SolarWinds, in response to the breach, they've done a whole bunch of redesigning uh, for the way that they approach their software development. And we'll get into that here to give you an idea of some of the changes that they've made. And they want to say that this would make it nearly impossible, which I would never say that. I think if they'd put that in their 10K statement, then they would really be in trouble. Yeah, but I'm just thinking challenge accepted, right? Okay, so what they've done is they've created three parallel development, three parallel lines, a developer pipeline, a staging pipeline, and a production pipeline. And no one person has access to all three. And then they compare those three bills before they release. Now, this is something maybe because I'm not a developer, I have a hard time understanding how this is. I, I can understand the way it sounds like it would be good, but the way that I understand the way a development pipeline goes is you do stuff in development, then what you produce in development gets moved up the stages in the pipeline. So you'd move from development to production to, or from development to staging to production. So eventually whatever code you implement in development ends up in the production pipeline. And if you're, and if you've put that code in the development, eventually it's going to get to production and it will match what you have in development because that's where it originated from. So if the attackers got in and mess with the development pipeline, I would think that eventually that would still have been moved into production and then verified in production. So maybe it's just my ignorance on the way that the development pipeline works to say that the fact that they have three pipelines and they compare the three is actually a really good method for preventing possible backdoors being implemented in the software. Yeah, the only way I can think of this working is you have to, if you, let's say you cannot move code between the pipelines, you'd have to like hand code all the changes into all of the pipelines. And that doesn't seem reasonable at all. Right. So I, yeah, and have like three separate people doing the coding. So no one person has access to all of them. I don't understand it at all. Yeah. I've talked to some people that have a better understanding about the way security or secure software development works to see if this really makes a whole lot of sense or not. But one of the other things that they've done is they've, they have ephemeral build, ephemeral build environments. So there can't be a long-lived compromise of any environment because the hosts on which the, that, that environment exists don't, don't last. Yeah. And the, that's true that, you know, an attacker on there is not going to hang around, but you can still compromise the root VM and then have it persist every time the VM is stood back up again. You could migrate between the VMs or between the containers constantly and just constantly be laterally moving, which again, there's more chance to be detected that way, but there's a lot of chance to be detected and hanging out in a single machine for a long time. 
mm-hmm. but I imagine it's easier to protect a few images or you know Docker images or something like that. If you only have a few to really monitor, you could do some amazing things with like file integrity monitoring or something like that, or you could really watch them really closely. Right. Yeah, because like the for the root VMs, those things are not actually online spun up machines that could be gotten into. So your virtual environment would have to be compromised in order for those root VMs to be compromised also. So that's a, it can be a high bar. I'm not saying it is a high bar, but it adds a certain level of complexity and difficulty to do that. But the next item is multi-factor authentication for all IT staff, IT and development staff. And of course, that's not foolproof that we just talked about, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that there are issues. It's an improvement, but not foolproof. And this I really hope they just mean that they've enhanced it and not added it, which is recording, logging, and auditing. So like I said, I hope they, that is not a statement of, oh, we've started doing this thing versus we're enhancing the way that we're doing this. Yeah, this one, and this is where it goes back to where they said in that 10K finally about how they can't anticipate everything. And again, like you said, it's true, but then the fact that they haven't but that they haven't been doing MFA, they may or may not have been logging. The next one or next one that we haven't talked about yet. Like there's lots of things in here that it strongly implies to maybe that's why I took it as we're not, uh, we can't, we, we're not even trying. Like we can't stop mm-hmm. them. They're just going to get in. So they are if you're not going to do anything to stop them. Uh, the next one is they've started doing red teaming and pen testing. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, they're not doing any pen testing beforehand. And then the last one is they stopped, produ- basically stopped production for six months so that they could focus on the security of the product. And that's yeah. pretty significant for a software company. Yeah, like, that was the one thing here that I thought was actually really impressive because like talking like the marketing teams and the sales teams and being like, all right, we're not gonna, like we're gonna take a financial hit for six months. Yeah, that actually reminds me of Bill Gates' letter from, what, 2002, where he said that Microsoft was going to stop what they were doing and focus on security for, I think it was six months then as well. I didn't think about it until now, so I didn't go and look up that, that how long Bill said they were going to do that for, but a very similar thing. And Microsoft was lauded at the time for taking that step. And, and I would say that they did do some significant things at the time to increase Microsoft's security, which apparently they've thrown out thrown in the toilet since then. But at the time, it was good news. Now, the basic, the wellness notice that the SEC, that uh, SolarWinds stated in there, that the SEC provided them, there was no, there were no details in there about why they, what they were being investigated for or, or what's going on with that notice, other than the general statements about disclosure of their public statements and internal controls and procedures. So we don't know exactly what their, what the SEC's complaint is. But I have a strong suspicion that it might be based on that lawsuit considering they were both published in the same document. Now, the reason that I think this is of note for virtually any organization is that based on the statements that I read in the complaint and the complaint itself, if Solder Winds is being hit with the 26, is hit, been found liable for the $26 million, I think that sets a bad precedent for virtually any organization to say that those statements were misleading uh, against the outcome of what happened with solar winds. And if that is going to be the bar that every company has to meet to not get sued, then I think we're all going to be in trouble here. Yeah. I mean, 
like I said before, if the discussions about what they're changing are accurate, they may deserve to have a lawsuit filed against them. You know, no MFA, no pen testing, no logging or auditing. But as you described it, as you described it right now, it does not sound appropriate. It does not sound like the lawsuit is appropriate. Yeah, because what they're saying is that the company lied about what their security posture looked like. And I don't think they did lie because I would think if they weren't doing MFA, they weren't doing pen testing, they said, hey, we're probably going to get breached. If they had said, hey, we might get breached because we're not doing these things, you know, that would be, that would, that's kind of the way that I read what they're saying. They, I guess based on what you're saying is that by saying, hey, we might get breached, it implied, hey, we're not doing these things, which is why we might get breached. And of course, what you can do about it is, you know, do the best, ensure you have de defense in depth, you know, and hope you don't get breached. And if you do get breached, you better hope that Congress does not care because I think this is another one of these things where SolarWinds is going to be made an example of, particularly because a lot of the downstream effects of that supply chain were government related. But that's all we have for today's podcast. Thank you for joining us and follow us at CircuitySec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.